passage of Scripture, John chapter 3, and I'd like to go back and single out one of the verses that uh, is going to be a verse of focus for us today because we're looking at questions people ask Jesus. And so verse number 4 certainly has a question. And let's look at that where it says, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? That's quite a question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So, having done that, let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, we'll pray, and then we'll jump right into a familiar place and see what God has for us in the Word of God today. O gracious Heavenly Father, we come into your presence, Lord. We pray that we will come humbly, understanding, Lord, that in me, as Paul says, that is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with us, but how to perform that which is good we find not. And Lord, we just are grateful today that uh, you came to us despite our worthlessness and despite our lost estate and loved us with an everlasting love. And we've read about that in this chapter, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And thank you that that great verse, it can't be outdone. It speaks in simplicity and yet depth about the wonder of the gospel, and about how by simply believing and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we can be born again and know that we have a home in heaven and know that our sins are forgiven. And Lord, had we nothing else, and all of our outward circumstances were negative and unfavorable, yet having Jesus Christ, we have all. You have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Help us to be grateful despite any trial, problem, or difficulty that may be on our minds or on our hearts just now, that having the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the greatest thing that there is to have. And uh, he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so thank you that we can look to you not only for salvation but for our daily needs, our sustenance. And we come to church, Lord, many times with weariness and with trial and tribulation, but we look to you and pray that you will encourage us and use the songs and the things that we have uh, have been a part of our worship service today. And now especially, Lord, we covet your blessing on your word. We realize that we can go through the motions, we can read it, we can preach it, we can listen to it, but if we don't have that with an open heart and if we don't have present the power and working of the Holy Spirit, those things don't amount to much. We certainly can't manufacture or accomplish anything of spiritual or eternal consequence. But we know that you can. And Lord, we desire that kind of working in our hearts and lives today. May each of us go away with a sense of your presence. Should we have anybody here today who can't honestly say that they've been born again? I pray, Father, that you would just continue to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself through the preaching of your word in this place and in all other places around the world where the word of God is being rightly divided today. Increase thy kingdom, Lord, we pray, and help us to be thankful that we'll be at the end of this day, another day closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things we pray now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Well, we are coming now in this series, they asked him this, to the last segment of it because John is the last of the Gospels, and some of the things, many of the things that have been in common with the other Gospels we've already looked at, but then we've gone to Mark and found the things that were there that were unique to Mark, and also Luke, we've done that. We come to John's Gospel, and I mentioned last week when we were talking about Nathaniel that that, of course, is something that's unique to John. And by the way, um, so much of the material in John is unique to John's gospel. 
So it shouldn't surprise us any when we turn to chapter 3 and we read about this interview that Jesus has with Nicodemus, this visit that Nicodemus pays to Jesus by night. Want to know about that? You're going to have to get it here because it's only in John's gospel. And so obviously with that also comes the conclusion and the realization that this question that Jesus asked Nicodemus is only here as well. I have to tell you, and I think nobody will really even pause to disagree with this, that this is probably the most, one of the most famous questions that was ever asked of Jesus. How can a man be born again, he basically asks. How can a man be born when he is old? How can a man be born again? What does that mean? What exactly are you talking about, and how does that happen? And Nicodemus is truly baffled. I think that's one of the things that we have to see right by way of introduction at the very beginning, and then we'll jump into what we're going to see in the message today. But Nicodemus is just totally baffled by this, which is why he asks the question. And you can certainly see this because notice if he asks the question how two times, in chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? So he doesn't He doesn't realize that Jesus is not talking in physical terms. He's talking in spiritual terms. He's talking about a second birth, a rebirth, and it's a spiritual birth, and he doesn't realize that at all. So it's no wonder that he can't quite understand how it is that Jesus is talking about being born again and why he would frame his question this way. Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? It just, it made no sense to him. Well, we drop down to verse number Nine, you'll find the second time that Nicodemus, Nicodemus listens a little while further to the Lord's explanations and words and says almost the same thing. Verse number nine, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? He is just drawing a blank. He just doesn't understand the plane that Jesus is on and what Jesus is talking about. Then, of course, you have another obvious insight or statement of this fact in verse number seven, where Jesus himself says to Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Don't be surprised. And we're going to look at to why Jesus might make that comment to him. Don't be surprised. He asks him, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. You shouldn't be baffled. You shouldn't be surprised by this. But Nevertheless, he was. He was drawing a complete spiritual blank. And of course, we'll have some more to say about that. But being as how, Nicodemus seemed to to, to just not be understanding what it is that the Lord asked. The Lord does more than just answer the question how. The Lord also answers the question what, and he answers the question why. And then he answers the question how. So we're going to look at these things about the new birth today. First of all, let's ask ourselves the question, what is the new birth? What is it that Jesus is talking about? Why do we need this? Jesus says, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So we have to understand when it says must, it means must. There's no compromise here. There's no room for quibbling over this. If you broaden this out, you take that little word in Greek that's translated must so often, it means it is necessary. So what Jesus is saying is, don't be surprised that I said to you, it is necessary to be born again. So we can argue about a lot of things, but beloved, this is a clear statement from Jesus. And if you have an argument about that, well, your argument's with him. And uh, Jesus makes it unequivocal. This is sort of the thing without which you don't enter the kingdom of God. This is the thing without which you do not see the kingdom of God. 
And so this is really an important subject that we're talking about today, and we need to be sure that we can understand it as best we possibly can. So the reason why Nicodemus was baffled, if we're talking about what is the new birth, uh, because I say he was completely thinking in physical terms, and you see that in that verse number four, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? It makes no sense, and if you think about it, that is true. On the physical level, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't happen. You're born one time, and no one enters back into his mother's womb and is born physically another time. So he, you know, he just doesn't get it here. But what Jesus is trying to make plain, and, and, and I'd like to try to show you here several ways that we can appreciate this from the passage, is that, no, he's not talking on the physical plane. He's talking about something spiritual. All right, so first of all, let's notice this. In verse number three, when this comes up, Jesus sort of comes right to the point, and he says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born. What's that word there? Again. Okay, and, and that's a very interesting word. Uh, many of you, I'm guessing, will have a marginal reading on that in your Bible. And the reason that you do is because we have a very interesting word. That word is used in verse 3. It's also used down again uh, later in the passage um, when it talks about being born again. But what's interesting about that, you probably, if you have a marginal reading on this, it's probably going to say something like this, born from above. So I hear many of you sort of assenting to that. You have that and you maybe wonder, uh, born from above. Why, 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 uh, why does it say that? Why does it give us that alternative as a, an understanding of this? Well, not to make things overly complex, but this is not the normal, regular word for again. The Greek certainly has that. It's a little word that's called pollen, and it means again. This word is onathan, and it means from above. It can also mean again. So, in other words, if you have two words that have some similarity in meaning, Synonyms are like this. You know, if you think about a circle laid over another circle, they have certain ground in common, right? But unless the circle is completely, exactly over the other circle, then you have some differences. So when you take this word onathan and you think to yourself, okay, he didn't use the normal common term for again, and it's not that translating it again has anything wrong with it because it can also mean that as well. But if you look for the distinctive component of meaning, why you might select onathan and use it here, well, it means from above. So Jesus isn't talking in earthly terms. This is the whole point. It may be a technicality, but this is the whole point that Jesus is making. We're not talking here in physical terms. We're not talking here in earthly terms. We're talking about something that comes from above, a heavenly birth, a spiritual birth, this second birth that we're talking about. If you drop down to verse 31, let me show you that. Here you'll find Onathan translated exactly that way. It says, he that cometh from above is above all. Well, when it says from above in that verse, there's the same word that we have in John 3, 3 that's translated again. So once again, again is fine, but if you're looking for the distinctive component in the word, it really helps to bring out the point that Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus. Okay, then he says something else. Let's drop down to verse number five and and uh, I always smile when I get to verse number five because Jesus seems to add something here. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, he mentions water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
So now we have sort of a, it seems like maybe we've got a secondary element thrown in here. What does exactly it mean to be born of the Spirit? That much we're kind of catching on to because Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. This is the whole point we're laboring to make. But he throws this water business in, and now what are we talking about? Well, the reason I have to smile, I mentioned this to you a moment ago, is because I can remember being a, a junior in college and sitting in a, a Bible class with a, a man who had been a pastor for years and years and years, but uh, they recruited him, and he, he was a professor there at the university. And when we got to John 3, 3, I've forgotten exactly what the particular, how we got to that, but we got to John 3, 3, and he offered that that was the only verse of Scripture that he and his wife had a difference of opinion on. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Only one? But it just kind of caught my attention. And to tell you the truth now, I've forgotten which one of them took which position on this. But there are several good interpretations of this, and you, you have probably heard some of this before. But just for the sake of making the argument, let me just quickly mention a couple of ideas here. Some people have thought that the reference to water has to do with the Word of God itself. And you've maybe heard this before. Jesus told uh, the disciples in John 15, 3, now ye are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, it's 26 or 27, it talks about uh, the washing of the water by the word. So some people identify that water in that instance with the word and think that, okay, Jesus is talking about the instrumentality of the word of God here. Um, it's a good interpretation. I can be certainly charitable towards people who hold that. I don't hold it myself because I don't think it really fits the context. I think that's kind of a, an element that wouldn't have necessarily computed with Nicodemus in the context. And I'm looking for something that Nicodemus is going to be able to latch onto and understand more of what Jesus is trying to say. And I've told you that what's going on is Jesus keeps trying to make the point that what we're talking about here is spiritual, not physical. Okay. Now, there is another interpretation that is also conservative. It's, it's reliable. It's good. You won't, you won't go wrong with this. It's just a matter of opinion of what, if you think that this is the valid one for the passage. Some people think that, well, when, when Nicodemus would hear water, what would be a natural thing for him to think of? That Asking the question that way, to me, is a strength of this interpretation. And some people have thought, well, he'd think of the baptism of John. And, of course... John's was a baptism unto, look if our word starts with an R, <laughs> repentance. And so if you take it that way and people say, well, Nicodemus would think of that right away because of John's baptism, then you're talking about the necessity of repentance. That's certainly true. So it's a solid interpretation. Again, I, I decline from that. I don't think it's really the one that fits the context the best. To me, I'm going with simple. <laughs> I'm going with what I think just makes the natural flow. If everything that Jesus is trying to do is to get the point across that there's a comparison, we're not talking in physical terms here. We're talking of something from above. We're talking about something that the Spirit of God has to be the author of. And so it only makes sense then in John 3, 5, that when he tried to give further explanation and continued trying to draw that contrast that he would say to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except to me a man be born of water, which is physical birth, right? And we often talk about this, right? We talk about someone, their water broke or something. We know birth is imminent. It seems to me that this is kind of a, a very natural, simple way to understand this. 
And, and I have no argument with the other ideas, but I think that this really continues to hammer down on this whole idea. Except a man be born the first time physically, water, and of the Spirit. Well, everybody here this morning was born the first time physically. That's why you're here. That's not the real question. Everybody knows that. If you walked in, we say, yep, he has a birthday. She has a birthday sometime, 100 years ago or five, but you have a birthday. The real question is, do you have a second birthday? And that's what he's saying to Nicodemus. You have to experience this second birth, this spiritual. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I think also when you think about one more thing in the passage, in the context, this illustration that Jesus gives about the wind. Look down in verse 8. He's just gotten done saying in verse 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again, Anathan again there from above. Then he says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. That just means the wind blows where it chooses to, where it desires to. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Well, Think about this, and this, is, I think, is another layer. It's another way of emphasizing this point. If you think about the wind, we see its evidence, right? So if the wind is blowing, you can look out there and see the, the uh, branches swaying, or sometimes you hear the wind, and, and it whistles, and this type of thing. So you know the wind is blowing, but guess what? You don't have any control over the wind. In fact, there's a certain mysterious element about the wind, especially if you're out hunting and they've told you it's going to be out of the west and it's out of the west one minute and the next minute it's out of the east or out of the south. It just plays havoc with things, right? And you, So oftentimes we have this, you know, you and I, I mean, you can study about thermals and you can figure out, okay, at a certain time of the day, the air is coming down the mountain. At a certain time of the day, as the air gets warmer, it's rising up. And all this bunch of stuff you can come up with to try to, 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 smart, to hunt smart. And you can go out there, as I have almost every time I've ever gone out, and you've got that little white talc powder or whatever it is. You, you know that up in the air. Not Johnson's baby, because that's got scent. Stuff they charge you five times what they ought to because it's a hunting product, you know, and you go out there with a little thing like that, poof, and you say, oh, the wind's supposed to be blowing that way, and now it's blowing this way. That's great. You know, I, I set, this, set this up for thinking that, and now I got this. Well, I don't have any control over it. But there is an element in which it can be said, if you go back to chapter 1 of, uh, chapter one of John, verse 12, uh, this is, there is an element in which we enter into physical birth. And he mentions this in uh, verse number 13 when he says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. See the will of the flesh? Nor the will of man, but of God. Well, people are involved. Babies are conceived. And so there is a human element, obviously, in the first birth that we experience. Again, it's just another layer. It's just another way of saying, you know what? I am talking about something that is exclusively spiritual. Its origin is in heaven. Its power is supernatural. And it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm trying to talk about, Nicodemus, not going the second time. Now, why was, why was Jesus a little bumfuzzled or maybe gave just the mild in, thought to Nicodemus? You're a, you're a master. See, our, our version says master. 
And this is, this is just the word teacher. So he's saying to him, you know, you're a teacher of Israel. And in verse number one, we're told that he's a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, so we know this. What that ruler of the Jews, it means he was a part of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was a part of the highest council, but he was a part of the minority party. He was the part of, he was of the Pharisaic element. And so he comes to Jesus and Jesus wants to say to him, well, you're a teacher, you're an authority, you're an, a religious authority. You have a name for being someone who is supposed to understand and know the scriptures. But yet it's a shock to you that I'm talking about a spiritual birth, a new heart. Why is that? And it really shouldn't be, I think, according to what Jesus is saying, because let's just look at a couple of scriptures. We won't take a lot of time with this, but we'll wind this down and get to the next. But Jeremiah chapter 31, let's look there because Jesus had a reason. He said that to him. He, Jesus had a reason to expect that this concept of a, of a new heart, uh, of a working of God in the heart to create a new heart would not be something that would just be uh, uh, outlandish or, or something that you wouldn't understand if you were a student of the Old Testament. Look in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33 talking about the new covenant. And it says, um, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's talking about a changed heart and a number of places. Let's go over to the book of Ezekiel. And uh, I'm just kind of giving some of the better known of these, but Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, the context there is the new covenant. And let's just take a look at verse 25. It says, then shall I sprinkle clean water. So there's another tie-in with water, if, if you like that. But he says, then shall I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart. See, this is the whole thing. It's not as if this concept of a new heart, a changed heart, is new in the Scripture at all or in the Old Testament. A new heart, he says, will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my commandments and do them. And so the concept of a, a new heart um, tantamount to what Jesus is describing here, a spiritual rebirth, something that God does in the heart by which the heart is changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and God writes his, his word on the very, his, his law on the very tables of our heart, not on, on tables of stone, was, was certainly not unprecedented in the Old Testament. And there was certainly plenty in the Old Testament to indicate, to indicate that man certainly needed a new heart. Well, if you think about this, there in the early chapters of Genesis, I mean, what's the condition of the human heart apart from grace? What's the condition of the human heart apart from this rebirth? Well, he told them in the garden, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Wow. In other words, 
Spiritual death is that which characterizes us apart from grace and apart from Christ and apart. We have no life, spiritual life. We have physical life. He said, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, they didn't die physically that day. All that was set in motion. They died later, but they died spiritually that day in the sense that they lost. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, and they were alienated from the life of God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, you get just a couple chapters later to chapter 6 of Genesis and verse 3. It, when God was ready to destroy the earth, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or you come to the New Testament where Paul really fleshes this out and he talks about the fact that for as in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. So to be born of Adam is to inherit physical death, spiritual death. We stand in need of this new birth because we have no spiritual life apart from it, which is why we so desperately need this. And Ephesians 2.5, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So now we've gone a good ways in talking about what? To halfway answering why, which is our second thought. Because now the reasons naturally flow. I mean, we kind of looked over maybe of it a little bit more from a theological perspective in the Old Testament. And Jesus gives the practical outworking of that in this passage. What, there's always a practical aspect to anything that the Bible teaches. And Jesus sort of talks in those terms here when he says, you know what? What, is this, what does it mean that we need a spiritual rebirth? What does it mean that we're, as an Adam all die, in other words, that that, that we're alienated from the life of God and we're dead in our trespasses and sins. What's that really mean in practical terms? Well, he says in verse 3, look at this. It gives two things. Verily I answered, and Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now let me ask you a loaded question and see if we can make the point of what this means by asking the question. Can you see the kingdom of God today? And the answer to that is yes and no, right? I mean, you can't see into heaven, not in the literal sense. You can't see where it is or what it looks like or any of those kinds of things. But you can see it in the sense that you perceive it and you understand it. And that's the way in which we have to understand and take this usage here. When, when this word is not talking about what we see physically, it's talking about what we're able to perceive, what we're able to understand. Nicodemus certainly proved that point, didn't he? Because Jesus was talking about the new birth and Nicodemus didn't understand it. He didn't perceive what Jesus was talking about. It, was, it didn't make sense to him. And so often that's the case, um, that we encounter and think back even into our own personal experience and realize how, how little we really understood and, and how, much it, how, how little uh, so much of it the sense of it didn't seem to make sense to us. And I want to take you back to 18th century England to give an example of this, but many people here today will know the name William Wilberforce. Uh, he was a member of Parliament, and he was also sort of known for uh, championing, uh, doing away with slavery, ab the abolition movement. Uh, and 
William Wilberforce was a man who was born again, who knew Christ as his personal savior. Well, he had a close friend in Parliament. In fact, it was the Prime Minister. And his friend was William Pitt. So some people may know that name as well, but he was really burdened for his friend because Pitt, Pitt was a, a churchgoer, but he, he really wasn't a believer. He, he, like a lot of us, before we really heard the gospel, you know, we had a form of godliness, but we didn't really understand all of this. And so he had a burden for him, and so uh, it seemed as if the Lord was really burdening him. There was a man who was a... Uh, a very well-known, very popular evangelist in the day. His name was Richard Cecil. And he happened to be in London at the time holding meetings. And so Wilberforce went to Pitt and said, would you go with me tonight to hear Cecil? And Pitt agreed to go. Well, they got to the service that night, and I'm telling you what, Cecil was in rare form. I mean, he held forth and preached the gospel I mean, he was, at his, he was at the top of his game that night when he was preaching the Word of God. And Wilberforce sat in that service, and you and I have had this experience. This man preached, and oh, he was just thrilled. It was like he was transported virtually into the heavenlies with the blessings that, of the message. Well, the, the meeting ended, and they got ready to leave, and Wilberforce was kind of wondering what Pitt might have thought of the service when Pitt all of a sudden said to him, he said, you know, Wilberforce, he said, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Well, we're not going to sit here and say that Pitt wasn't an intellectual, that Pitt was slow this way. He was slow this way. That's the problem, see, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And Paul comes along and tells us, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so many times there are people in our society today, people who are highly intelligent, highly educated, but they have no concept of spiritual gospel truth. None whatsoever, it seems. It's not that they're incapable of reading taking the Bible and opening it, Genesis chapter 1, and it says God created in the heaven and the earth. It's not that they're incapable of understanding the claim that that makes, but to understand spiritual truth in the sense that it makes sense in our hearts and we begin to respond to it, now they just, that takes a working of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in just a moment. And, of course, the second thing that he says is in verse 5, he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into they don't have any dead people in heaven. Dead physically or dead spiritually. Do you ever think what it would be like to be in heaven if you were a sinner and never converted and weren't born again? What would you ever stick out? What would you ever be uncomfortable? That'd be a real mismatch, wouldn't it? When everything there is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. When we're told in the book of the Revelation that no Nothing like that will enter in there. No liars, no whoremongers, none of that. It's all gone. It's everything in heaven is precisely as God is. Everything is righteous and clean and holy. Boy, a sinner who didn't understand or appreciate much of that would certainly be out of place. And none of that in heaven. So... We have to be born again if we're going to. So I'm going to come back and just stop and say it again. Are you hearing this? You can't 
you can't really equivocate with this. Jesus says, if you want to understand spiritual truth, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be born again. That's not my statement. That's Jesus' statement. Let's ask the last question because maybe somebody here isn't certain about this. Many of us have heard, understood this for a long time and, and, and understood a great, uh, all about this, but Jesus says, Nicodemus says, how? How does this happen? Well, one thing's for sure. We've made this abundantly clear. We certainly aren't capable of accomplishing this in and of ourselves. It is like the wind. It's a force that God sends, and it's not of our doing. It's from on high. And it rules out any form of works. It, 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 enters, it, it rules out any idea that somehow our good works get us to heaven because good works don't have anything to do with, the spiritual, with spiritual rebirth. It's, a, it's a, a supernatural work that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God. Which is why, again, Paul, when he gives us more of this later on, says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The new birth comes from on high. It's a product of the working of God. So it's not by works. If you're asking how, it's not by works. But if we are incapable, let me tell you something. Praise the Lord. God is capable. God can do the impossible. God can bring life out of death. And just as surely as we will experience this one day physically, it is also true that well before that time, we can experience that physically and have God give us new life in Christ. Our eyes open to understand spiritual truth so that we can see the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a blessing. I'm telling you, it's a wonderful thing to be able to open your Bible and see the things of the kingdom of heaven. How does this come about? How did it come about for Nicodemus? Because I want to tell you this, if you haven't thought about this before, I think it did. Not right that day. Later. But I think when you get to heaven, you're going to find Nicodemus there so you can... I'm going to ask him, did I get it right? About the water? Maybe stop and ask Jesus first. I don't know. I don't think we'll have to ask because it says when we get there, we'll know even as often we're known. As also we're known. But I think Nicodemus, let me show you why I think this. Look at the end of chapter 2. There's something very subtle going on here, but it's worth knowing. So you get to the end of chapter 2, and it's talking about all those people that believed. And it says, Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast days, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But it says, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. But there's a word play here that we don't see. Um, in the way the English is translated for us here, because it's the, it's the word to believe used twice. Let me, let, me, let me put it that way to you, and you'll see what I'm talking about. In verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed or trusted in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. 
but Jesus did not entrust himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man for he knew what was in man. In other words, there were people there who genuinely professed and believed and there were people there that they saw the bread, they saw the miracles and their interest was surface and wasn't genuine. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. You say, where are you putting the butt from? It's there. For whatever reason, the translators didn't see fit to translate that, but there's a little word there now. It's not the strongest word for but. And if you check other English translations that, that, that do see fit to bring this out, normally they'll use the word now. And the whole point that's going on here, but it's a mild adversative, it can mean but. So what happens here is, what point am I making is, I'm saying that there's a contrast between what happens in the last two verses, three verses of chapter 2, and this man Nicodemus. There were these people that Jesus didn't trust, didn't commit to, didn't put his faith in them because he could see their hearts and knew that they weren't sincere. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. What was the difference? The Spirit of God was working in his heart. That's why he came by night, see. You should think about it. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. What a startling, rec- what a startling admission. Can you imagine someone from the council coming and admitting and saying to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles ex- that thou doest except God be with him. Well, he was honest. The rest of them had already decided, no, 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 no. We're not having anything to do with him. And they ultimately rejected him. But Nicodemus was different. What made the difference? The Holy Spirit was working in his heart. And he came by night. Do you know there are three references to Nicodemus in John's Gospel? One's right here. Let's go over to chapter 7. Every time Nicodemus is mentioned, it mentions he came by night. There's something very significant about this. Nicodemus, verse 50, saith unto them, and they'll look at in parenthesis, this, that came, the, the same, that, the, the came, that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? See, you do see him becoming increasingly bolder until finally we get to chapter 19, and let's go to chapter 19, verse 38. He had a friend. He had a good friend, Joseph of Arimathea. These two got together at the crucifixion. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, John 19, 38, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. This is why Nicodemus at first came by night. Besought Pilate that he might take the bo- away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. And together they prepared the body of Jesus for burial. At first by night, at the first by night, at the last by day. I have another sermon that that's the title for it. At first by night, at last by day. He comes completely out of the shadows. Why is it? This thing that Jesus said to him about how it is that you're born again. He gave him an illustration from the Old Testament. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. 
And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you know that story? Real quickly, let me just summarize it. So Numbers chapter 21 is where you would go if you want to read the story. But the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness. They complained. They complained against God. They complained about Moses. They said, we're tired of this manna and we don't have any water to drink. And God brought judgment on them and sent those fiery serpents in their midst. And when they were bitten with those fiery serpents, many of the people died. They were venomous and there was nothing that could be done for them. And they were dying. And they, they called out to God. They confessed their sins. And God told Moses, make a brass effigy or a bronze effigy of that one of those serpents and put it on the pole and lift it up. Why put it on a pole and lift it up? Put it on a pole and lift it up so anybody who wants to look can see it. And then tell them if they'll just look to that. When any man is bitten, if they'll just look to that. And they were saved. They were delivered. You know, God put Jesus up on a cross and God told us to exalt. And I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men to myself. You high, hold Jesus high because everybody is meant to be able to see him. Everybody's meant to understand what Calvary's cross is all about or hear that message. And I think Nicodemus, when he came at the end and he saw what happened at Calvary, of course, this scene is a, is a little bit after now. I think it finally dawned on him. He didn't have any problem coming in the daylight, just as our Joseph of Arimathea didn't have any problem coming in the daylight. Those guys understood. Nicodemus that at first was confused. Nicodemus that first didn't understand. And how did it come about? It came about, how does this new birth come about? It comes about through that conviction that I mentioned. God was working in his heart, testifying to him of who Jesus is and of his need of a Savior. And then it came about when Nicodemus put simple faith in the one who hung on the cross. And that's why you get to John 3, 15 and 16. That whosoever believeth in him, that is Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Beloved, in the early 1700s, there was a young man who was a college student at Oxford. This young man suddenly came to the realization that he needed to do something about his life because he was in an, a terrible lifestyle, a, a debauched and wicked lifestyle. What did he do about it when he decided he needed to change? This is the flesh. This is the understanding of the flesh. Here's what he did. He resolved to change, so he denied himself every luxury. He wore ragged clothes. He ate no food except food that was unpleasant to him. He fasted twice a week. He gave money to the poor. He spent whole nights in prayer, lying prostrate on either cold stones or wet grass. But he got to the end of this experience and he said to himself, he felt like he was putting a, paint of coat, a, a coat of paint on rotten wood. Because his outward deeds didn't do anything to change what was really in his heart. Well, he had a friend in college and his friend's name was Charles Wesley. By the way, the man I'm telling you about is George Whitfield. And George Whitfield or and Charles Wesley said to his friend, 
here, I want you to read this book. And he gave him a copy of Henry Skugel's book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Whitfield read that book and realized what he was saying in that book, that the only way that Whitfield could really be changed, really experience the kind of change he realized he needed in his life was if a supernatural work took place, a new birth. He says it in his own words. Listen to what Whitfield said. When I read this, he said, a ray of divine light instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know I must trust, did I know I must become a new creation. After having undergone innumerable buffetings day and night, God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold on his dear son. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory was I filled when the weight of sin left me and an abiding sense of pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. If you know anything about Whitfield, you know that Whitfield is said to have preached some 18,000 times. Oftentimes to people, crowds of 20,000 people with no microphone, no PA system. And I don't know how many to tell you the number is, but many, many, many of those sermons were on this text. The new birth, you must be born again. In one of his final sermons, he said this, I am now 55 years of age, and I tell you that I am more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself and that without it, you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. One day, a friend asked George Whitfield, why do you preach so often on ye must be born again? Whitfield's answer was, because ye must be born again.